we turn again to Romans chapter 7 and to verse 14. We're looking these Sunday evenings at this uh, important uh, pastoral and theological passage. Romans seven fourteen. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Well, let me ask you two little questions to test you here. The first is this. If I should say to you, the law is spiritual, then what or how would you reply? And I guess that many of you, most of you, because it's here in the Bible, you would say, yes. And then you would add something like, but it can't save us, can it? No one can be saved by morality, by keeping the law. And I would be delighted with that reply. The law is spiritual in a number of ways. It gives to sinners the knowledge of what sin is. And that's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He's showing us how we need divine mercy and grace, the best of us. The law has a vital role then in evangelism and it shows people that they are sinners and they need a saviour. The law is spiritual again in showing us as Christians how we should live. The moral principles that we live by. The law is spiritual in its origin, in its divine authority, in its character. The law is spiritual in the fact that God writes it on the heart of every believer. The law is spiritual in that the Holy Spirit was there with God the Father and God the Son on Mount Sinai when the law was given to Moses. The law is spiritual in that we can't obey it at all without the energy and the empowering of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our hearts. The law is spiritual in that when we pray and we say, search me, O Lord, and know my heart, test me, and uh, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And then it is that the Spirit of God, of the three persons of the Godhead, it is particularly the Spirit of God who comes and answers that prayer and ministers to us. Well, now, what do you think of that? The law is spiritual. And I guess some of you are uh, just saying, yes, but. And you mean by that cautious agreement that you want to magnify the grace of God in what he's done in in your life. Uh, We're free from law-keeping to get salvation. We are dead to the law as a means of righteousness. We are redeemed from the curse of the law. The law has been abolished in all its shadows, driven away. The sun of righteousness has shone upon us. All the ceremonial aspects of the law has been fulfilled by Christ and his life and death. I hope you are thinking some of these things because that's what I believe too. The law is spiritual, but Mr. Morality... He can't save me. We must have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. We must have his blood and righteousness. And that's our, our only hope in life and death. 
Only the Son of God can redeem us and can present us faultless to his Heavenly Father. You agree with that, then? Well, that's very good. That's basic Christianity, and you've grasped basic Christianity. and That's a foundation on which you are living your life and hoping for the future. Now, another question to test you. If I should confess to you, I am unspiritual. The word in our text means fleshly or carnal. Sold as a slave to sin. What would you say to me if I said that to you tonight? I am fleshly. I am carnal. I am unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. Well, I think there would be a threefold response from you. Some of you would say, oh no, pastor, you're being too hard on yourself. You're washed in the blood of Christ. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. You're justified through faith in the Savior. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor, you of all people must uh, remember that and cling to that. Some of you would say that. And then others of you would ask me, are you, you all right tonight, Pastor? Uh, you know, things okay with you? Uh, precious? Too much for you? Feeling depressed? Um, why, why do you have such morbid thoughts? You need to look to Jesus, Pastor. For every glance at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. He knows all about you and he loves you. He'll keep you safe, whatever good or bad that you have done. Some of you would say that to me. And then thirdly, others would say, Pastor, do you feel like that too? Unspiritual. And uh, sold as a slave to sin. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that because there are times when I just feel like that myself about my Christian life. So those three responses then are all pastorally true and helpful and I find myself giving them as I talk to people and try to understand where they're coming from and, uh, and I identify with the Apostle here, when he says, I am unspiritual or carnal, sold as a slave to sin. We, we try to work out when people come to see us just where they're at. What's their problem? It's all new. It's all uncharted territory. I've had a letter recently, which I've shared with some of you, from uh, um, a man who thinks he sinned. Has he sinned the unforgivable sin? And I can't just dismiss him and say, oh, don't be silly. I can't just uh, exhort him with a cliche, look to Jesus. Maybe he's suffering from clinical depression. Maybe uh, his falls into sin are a result of him not keeping the shield of faith high and, and really trusting in God. In, in tough times. He's allowed a, a fiery dart to get through. Only takes one to get through. Whatever has caused the state of mind that he's in, I, I mustn't make it worse. I mustn't crush him. But I mustn't condone his sinning either. So it's tough. It's tough. Pastoring and counseling 
the gap between vice and virtue is a razor's edge. And this is why this second half of the letter of Paul to Romans in chapter 7 is so important in helping us to understand ourselves and understand the nature of the Christian life. The law of God is perfect. That's what the uh, apostle affirms in our text. It's terrifically perfect. It's blazing sunshine at full noon beaming down upon us, the, the law of God. But we're not. The law requires truth in the inward parts. It doesn't permit the singlest deviation from the divine standard. It it detects every ambush on our deceitful hearts. And Paul is aware of this, and this is why in this chapter, from this verse onwards, verse 14, the verse that's before us tonight, it's very interesting to notice how the tense of the verbs change. It changes to the present tense. And he is no longer saying we, but he's saying I. He's talking here about his regenerate heart, his new heart of flesh that God has given to him in the new birth. His heart of stone has been removed and he's just one new heart. And on that heart, God has written his law. And one result of that is that when we hear the commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength, then our new hearts say, ah, yes, how beautiful. That's the life for me. And when we hear the second commandment, which is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, we say, ah, yes. That's what I want to do. I want to love my neighbor as myself. May it be so. But our hearts, though they admire and adore such graces, alas, the commandments give us no power to keep them. The law of God that's written there on our hearts doesn't provide us with energy to enable us to do what God requires. No, your heart may admire the face of the young Clint Eastwood and think, oh, boy, isn't he good looking. But there's nothing in your heart that enables you to change your visage from that rather worn and grumpy face that it is so that it looks like his face. Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm not a handsome guy, I'm a pretty plain, I'm a pretty ordinary looking chap. And we're like that with the law of God. Oh, we, we read it, we think it's so sensible, it's so wise, it has a beauty about it, it's summarily comprehended in loving God, wholeheartedly loving our neighbors like ourselves. And, but it can't make us do those things. The law is helpless to do that. It can't make us as beautiful as Christ. Only God can do that. The laws of God are impotent. They are powerless to make us transformed and sanctify us and make us then like our Redeemer. 
The fault doesn't lie in the law, but in the fact that we are carnal. We are unspiritual. We are sold as slaves to sin. So let me move on then and ask this question. When can a Christian speak of himself as carnal or unspiritual? Paul says here. And there are three correct answers to that question. The first is this. The Christian may speak of himself as carnal before he is born again. At that time in his life, he doesn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's dead in trespasses and sins. He's under the influence of sin. If you tell him, cheer up and uh, look for the hero inside himself, he may look in vain, because what he will find is ego. Of course, that flesh of his is being restrained by all sorts of things, the godly influences of his of his upbringing, his dear mother and father, and uh, the way they've, they've sought to keep him sensible and told him what the best way of living is. Um, his education, the earlier grace that there is in our land uh, that's come down to us and has checked our follies in so many ways. He's not as bad as he could be. He's not as bad as he will be. He's learned that the way of the transgressor is hard, and so he shuns a life of crime. He makes resolutions. He turns over a new leaf. He buckles down to his job. He cares for his family. But in his heart, all the time, he knows there's a a battle going on in his life, a battle with uh, deceit and foul imaginations and pride and self-pity. His ambitions are selfish. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, the Bible says. Again, those who live according to the flesh cannot please God. So the first answer to the question of when is any Christian able to say, um, I, am, I am carnal, I am unspiritual, is before you were converted. You had to say that, because that was your state, and those of you who are not Christians yet tonight, that's your condition. Secondly, a Christian can speak of himself as carnal when he acts in a carnal way, when he does carnal things. I'm speaking about certain deficiencies then that arise in our Christian walk. I'm thinking of Peter swearing and uh, denying knowing Christ for the third time on a dark night, warming his hands by a fire. And Peter was acting carnally when he denied his Lord. He was acting in the flesh. When the mother of James and John came to the Lord Jesus and said, can you give to my boys the best places in heaven? Can one sit on your right and one sit on your left? Then she was being carnally ambitious for her children. When Abram told Sarah to tell people she was his sister and not his wife, in doing that he was being spiritually carnal. When Jonah ran away from the path to Nineveh and went in the opposite direction to Tarshish, he was being carnally rebellious 
against God. When some of the Christians in Corinth said, uh, Peter's the greatest, oh, I can't, I can't get things out of Paul and Apollos. And others said, oh, Paul is the greatest. I, I can only uh, listen to him preach. He really touches my heart. They were being carnal in comparing men and measuring men and judging men in that way. All of those different falling, sinning believers could say to themselves, in the way I spoke, in the way I acted, I was being carnal and fleshly and unspiritual. I'm saying that this particular behavior of all those Christians, when they acted in those wretched ways, was carnal behavior. They were acting like unbelievers. They were acting like the world. They were defying God. They were lying to men. They were running away and so on. And that's what you expect from people who don't have the the energy and the power of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and lives to help them to live a different life. Jesus Christ was not living in their hearts. And that's what you see in the world. That the world is weak and cowardly. But when we act in those ways, then we're not being spiritual. We Christians, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, joined to Jesus Christ, are being worldly. Now you understand when I talked about Peter and Abraham, and when I talked about Paul and the mother of uh, James and John, and so on. In the other areas of their lives, they were good people. You understand that, don't you? They had their quiet times. They were scrupulously faithful to their spouses. They were honest people. They abhorred violence. They turned the other cheek. They didn't neglect the assembling them of themselves together. On the Lord's Day, they were, gave generously to mission. They were ready, if you asked them, what's your hope of eternal life? They would say, well, Jesus, of course, that's my hope. They memorized scripture. They visited other Christians in need. They weren't carnal in every other area of life as well. Just in one particular area of their lives. They were unspiritual. They were fleshly. They were acting like babes in Christ. They're disputing their lies, their false ambitions. They were symptoms that showed the presence of sin in their lives. How weak we are, how weak Paul is. That we have such privileges and we don't live up to our privileges. What wonderful privileges we've had from our families and from our churches and our friends and members of our families have been such a help to us. And yet, oh, there are some sins that easily beset us and we're carnal in that area of our lives. You understand what I'm saying? What I'm getting at is simply there are no, there's no two-tier Christianity taught in the Bible. There are not carnal Christians and spiritual Christians in an absolute sense. You know what uh, I'm talking about. I'm talking about a person who has made a profession of faith in Christ. And soon he's nowhere. You never see him in the meetings. 
He's not interested in the Bible or going to church or meeting with other Christians. He never prays. He doesn't give God a thought. Now, I'm saying to you, you may not say about such a person, oh, he's a Christian because a year ago he was baptized. Or a year ago he was confirmed. He shook hands with the preacher and he joined a church because very quickly after that, where was he? His fascination with the things of God disappeared like the morning dew. Now, he's not a carnal Christian. He's a stony ground hearer that Jesus speaks about in the parable of the sermon uh, of the good sower. That uh, seed falls into shallow ground and immediately, because the soil is warm, and there's, there's growth and there's life. But, oh, it doesn't last. The first trouble, the first cares come and... It shrivels and it dies. Not a carnal Christian. His need is not for a step up, an elevation to a higher level. His need is for a new birth. His need is for a new heart. His need is to be made a new creation. He made a profession with his lips. He had some initial excitement. But there wasn't the transforming energy of God that made him present his body as a living sacrifice to God, come what may. The root of the gospel had never penetrated his heart. I'm saying to you, there's no such being as a carnal Christian who, because of some decision, now is just uh, to be considered a Christian, but indistinguishable from a worldling. The third way a Christian can speak of himself as carnal is what we may call, in a general way, in a relative way. Like I may say truthfully to you with a heavy heart, what an unspiritual man I am. Oh dear, how fleshly I can behave, how carnal. I I read the Ten Commandments and I hear how Jesus opens them up and shows them to me in Matthew 5. And I see how Paul opens them up in, uh, in Romans chapter 12 and I say, oh dear, am I a Christian at all? Woe is me, I'm not living as I should. That is what Paul is saying here. I'm carnal, I'm unspiritual, I'm fleshly. And we understand what he's saying because we make the same sort, if we're honest, the same sort of lamentation ourselves. We, we read Abraham, and you know, Abraham said, I am nothing but dust and ashes. And we don't run up to Abraham and say, Oh, don't say that, Abraham. Don't say that. You are righteous. You believed God and it's been declared to you for righteousness. They're both true. He did believe in God and he is declared righteous in God's sight, but he is also dust and ashes. Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies you have shown to your servant. And we know 
We know, we feel that. We know exactly what he says. We're conscious of our struggles and our failures. How unworthy we are of the mighty forgiveness of God. And we are mighty glad that there is mercy with him. We feel our sin. I'm aware of my failures as a believer. But I'm conscious that I'm no longer living as I once lived. Prayerless. With me and my happiness, my chief goal in life. That's not. I'm no longer part of unregenerate humanity. I'm not a part of them. I'm not in that kingdom. I'm not a man in the flesh under the power of sin. Um, There is not in one area of my life uh, a filthy, godless man, a drunkard, a pervert, a thief, a wife abuser, a murderer. I'm not saying that when I say, uh, oh, I'm not the man I should be. I'm I'm carnal. I'm, I'm sold to sin. Compared to many people in the world, I'm spiritual. I must say that. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I must say that, and I'm not boasting when I say that. That's my status in Christ. Jesus Christ of God is made unto me wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's my position in Jesus Christ. I understand exactly what Paul is saying when he writes to the Thessalonian Christians and he says to them, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believe. No, a Christian should be able to say that, shouldn't he? He should say, oh, I'm carnal, I'm a poor poor Christian. But we should be able to say that. Paul was not claiming sinless perfection when he said that. He wasn't turning a blind eye to his faults. But he's saying, I had an integrity when I was with you. I could face scrutiny when I was with you. There was a genuineness about my walk with God and my faith when I was with you. God achieved a wonderful thing when he met with me on the Damascus Road. Look, I was killing people. I was throwing people into prison. I was making Christians blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not like that now. And you are not like that. I can thank God for so many of you. I'm so impressed and and challenged and thankful for what I see of Jesus Christ in the lives of so many of you. The younger Christians, the students, as the older believers. You're not like Peter, warming your hands and afraid when a girl says, are you a Christian then, and cursing. You're not like that. You're unlike Jonah Jonah says, is told by the Lord to to do something and speak to people and he runs away. You're not like that. You're unlike the people of Corinth. And that you've got men that you elevate and you say, oh, he's the preacher. And I can't hear the gospel from anyone else. I thank God for you. The change that God has wrought in your hearts. 
I'm saying this. When I consider the law of God that says love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Then I just, oh, what a standard. How poor I am in keeping that standard. It's a worthy standard. It's a great standard to have in your life. And oh, I'm, I'm a failure. The law is perfect and I'm carnal. When I consider what God says to me about my relationship to you, that I must love you as I love myself, I break my heart that I've made so little progress. I've been a Christian now for 61 years. And there's still so much indwelling sin and remaining sin and pride within me. And I say, I'm carnal. I'm unspiritual. I'm too much influenced by the flesh. I'm unequal to the demands of God. I'm so often a failure as a follower of Jesus Christ. That, that's the language of deep sorrow. That's the language of mourning, of remaining sin. Every mature and thoughtful and honest disciple of Jesus Christ says the same thing, must say the same thing. There was a newly married couple and uh, they went to a new town and uh, a new church and they met befriended there by a woman. And after a time, she told them that she hadn't sinned for two years. And they were very discouraged when she told them that. Because they battled with remaining sin. And were conscious that at the end of every day, they had to say something like, "And we confess to the Lord our sins, and we're so sorry that our tongues ran away with us, and we weren't kind and patient with one another, and... We had these imaginations and desires. Lord, we are so sorry. And then they got to know the woman better. And they discovered that she was simply being blind to her sins. And refusing to acknowledge her ignorance. And her selfishness. And her impatience. She was defining sin as some... You know, big headline hitting newspaper article definition of what sins are. She hadn't really understood what Jesus says, what sin is, in Matthew chapter 5. So I'm saying that these words of Paul in our text, that Paul wrote them not at a time of spiritual declension and backsliding in his life. Not before he got Holy Spirit baptism, for example. But as a spiritually minded believer, as a mature man of God, as a representative of every single Christian. And in all of us, there's so much regret. We're unprofitable servants, we say. There's such a sense of failure that every, every Christian has. Let me say it like this. Every Christian lives in one period of his life, before he was born again, before he came to believe in Jesus Christ, during that time he was exclusively a sinner. Then, 
every single Christian is looking forward to a future time in his life, in glory, when he will live exclusively as a saint. But now, today, tonight, in Aberystwyth, as Paul, in his moment when he dictated that letter, and as I'm preaching to you what he wrote, he, then, I, now, you, now, every Christian on the planet tonight are sinner saints. A saint to be sure. A saint who lives in Aberystwyth. That's what we are. A sinner to be sure. Who, when he compares his life with the life of Jesus Christ, when he compares his life with the the will of God, he groans in disappointment that he's made so little progress. There's a tension in the Christian life. There's a frustration because we have to deal daily with remaining sin. And we're living in a groaning world and we are being hit by the fiery darts of the evil one. Now that we move on, you see how the verse ends. And I want to ask the question, when can a Christian describe himself as sold as a slave to sin? That's the other phrase. Can a real Christian describe himself in this way? Must we say that when Paul wrote those words, he was thinking of the pre-Damascus Road time, when he was an unbeliever and a rebel against God. Paul was certainly, when he wrote this, he wasn't like a wicked king in the Old Testament called Ahab, 1 Kings 21. He abandoned himself to evil. We're told about Ahab. He sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. 1 Kings 21, 20, and it's repeated in verse 25. So then, what's the characteristic of a man who has sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Is there anyone here tonight who has sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, but through some miraculous providence, God has brought you here tonight. And you've been a person who hitherto has been selling yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. What would characterize such a man? Well, Ahab is an example. So what did Ahab do? Well, he took as his wife a very anti-Christ, anti-God woman. She was named Jezebel. She hated Jehovah. She hated his servants. She was a pagan princess who was the daughter of Ethbaal, a priest of the god Astarte. He married her. He was the king of Israel. He married her. And then we can say, he built an altar in Samaria, the capital city of the ten northern tribes of Israel, and he dedicated that altar to the god Baal. He built groves, um, a circle of trees on a, on a hill where the god Astarte 
was to be worshipped. He outlawed the worship of the Lord. And pagan worship was encouraged, and that included the sacrifice of children. He was greedy, he was petulant, he was content with the judicial murder of Naboth so that he could have his vineyard. He was characterized by sins of omission. For example, uh, he did nothing when Jezebel persecuted the prophets of the Lord. He didn't defend Elijah. He was an opportunist. He took any opportunity he could to aggrandize himself and satisfy his desires. He never sought cleansing. He never sought forgiveness from God as David did. Now those would be the characteristics of a man who had sold himself to do evil. This is a description of the man that Bunyan describes for us in the cage. So Ahab, the king of Israel, deliberately rejected Jehovah as his God and he abandoned himself to live a life without law. I did it my way, he said. He sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, let's take that as a possibility, as a reality, that a person can be brought up in a land where there's been a lot of gospel, a lot of prophetic work and and preaching, where there have been people who love and serve the Lord and pray for the land with all the privileges of that life. And a man can reject it entirely. He can scorn it. He can belittle it. He can use what power he has to dismiss it and weaken it and destroy it. And the history of the church is full of examples of such men like Ahab who've done this very thing, who sold themselves to do evil in the sight of God. Jesus warns us, Remember Lot's wife. Paul tells us, if we are professing Christians, we should take heed lest we fall. Uh, Here's Judas. Judas heard the Sermon on the Mount. Judas saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Judas was the recipient of caring warnings from our Lord Jesus, exquisite pastoral care, and yet he betrayed the Lord in crucifixion. Ahab. Paul wasn't like that at all, was he? No regenerate man, no true Christian can behave in the way Ahab behaved. I know David behaved abominably, abominably. Unbelievably. And yet David, with a broken heart, went to the Lord and he prayed and he asked for forgiveness, a washing, a cleansing. He asked for mercy. The vilest offender who goes and asks mercy from God, from his heart, he mercy receives. There's not one who's gone to God and asked for forgiveness, who's been turned away. So when Paul says, I am sold as a slave to sin. He's not saying, I'm just like Ahab. He's saying, Lord, sin is very active in my life still. 
There have been days and periods in my life when sin has prevailed against me day after day. I know the power of sin over me. I, I feel myself its slave. That's, that's very different from what Ahab felt. Let's use the analogy of the Somali pirates. Okay, Somali pirates get alongside a ship and they climb up and they get on board and they take over the ship and they take the ship then to a Somali port and they require millions for the crew to be released and for the boat to be set free again. That's a picture then, that boat under the control of Somali pirates. So the unregenerate man, Lord Sin, rules over him. He's a slave to sin. But if a group of pirates comes on board a ship and the engineer locks himself down in the engine room and the captain and the first mate, they lock themselves safely uh, behind the wheel, then those pirates can do a lot of damage in the ship and they can cause havoc running here and there. But the engineer... And the captain are in communication and they are heading for the safety of a destroyer that is coming to rescue and save them. They are not going where the pirates want them to go. And that's the picture of the regenerate man in Christ. Sin is in his life. Sin is there, is troubling him, but he's not in sin. Sin gives him distress and pulls him down, but he hasn't sold himself to be consumed by sin. I had a roommate, I'd tell you about him, in seminary named Donald MacLeod, a Canadian. And his father, I've told you, was a missionary with the China Inland Mission in China. And he was taken captive in 1939-1940 by the Japanese. And he was in a prisoner of war camp for five years. He was a slave to the enemy. And what was his attitude during that time? He was a man who longed for freedom. He was a man who considered himself a loyal servant of his nation and prayed for British victory, American victory over Japan. He would complain of his captivity. That's a picture of a man in a, in a fallen world who's been born again and is in the kingdom of God and, and yet is, uh, is battered and tempted and knows the fiery darts and the troubles of a groaning fallen world. I might know of another man, I read about him in the papers, that he has gone freely from the United Kingdom, he's gone to Syria, he's become a mercenary, he's fighting for the Islamic State, He has sold himself to the employment of our enemy. And that man is very different from the involuntary slavery that Alistair MacLeod knew. The man in Syria is not complaining that he's come under the influence of ISIS. He is totally compliant. He's chosen to serve servitude, bondage. So here is Ahab, and he is deliberately defiant of God. And his whole life is saying, I'm against Jehovah. I don't want Jehovah. But Paul, when he says, I'm a slave to sin, oh, his head is hanging down. He's got so much regrets. Oh, he wishes his life was much more in accord with the law of God. He feels his cruel enemy's sin assaults him and troubles him and 
takes him captive once in a while and he wants to serve God. Sin is an alien intruder who deceives us. Sin tells us, you can be happy if you do what I tell you. And we know that solid joys and lasting treasure only comes from doing the will of God. Paul was like Job when Job says, I'm vile. He's just like the patriarch when he says, I'm unworthy. I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Paul is reflecting what Jesus says when he says, do you want true blessedness? I tell you where it begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. That's where blessedness begins, Jesus says. So I'm like, he says, a slave that's continually being put up for sale and I'm bought by Mr. Lust. And then sometime later he sells me and I'm bought by Mr. Prayerlessness. And sometime later he sells me and I'm bought by Mr. Cold Heart. And sometime later I'm bought by Mr. Impatience and I'm bought by Mr. Pride. And then I'm bought by Mr. Ignorance and I'm bought by Mr. Covetousness. I'm a slave. And I see in close-up how unhappy and, and degrading it is to live as those men live. And I resist them and they get angry with me and they sell me again to buy somebody else who will do freely what they want me to do. Paul says I'm being sold as a slave again and again. When we are young men, we battle with lusts. As we grow older, we battle with self. We battle with a grouchy spirit that's justifying itself, always wants to be right. So I'm saying, this is what Paul is saying here. You are sitting one night after a meal with a group of Christians, old and young. It's so good for young people to meet older people and to sit with them and listen to them talk of God's dealings with them through the years. And one older man quietly said, What a slave I am to carnal affections and unruly passions. And when you heard him say that, you didn't think, Well, he's not much of a Christian, is he? That thought was very far from you. You were encouraged that a man that seemed to you to be so God-honoring and gracious and humble that he had a battle with remaining sin and he had to struggle to keep trusting in Jesus Christ and the fact that he told you of his struggles he showed that he was a real born again man with real humility who does God dwell with those that are of a meek and gentle spirit God dwells with you wouldn't find King Ahab ever saying things like that here is Paul okay he's battling with principalities and powers he's aware he's on the victory side he's more than conqueror but often he loses this skirmish and this occasional battle he's defeated but the war He's more than conqueror. He's going to be delivered. He's going to glory. He's going to heaven. We sin and immediately the devil jumps in and the devil says to us, you're not a Christian. 
you've sinned this sin. You've sinned it again. You've sinned it again and again. The same sins. But God doesn't promise us in his word that we won't commit the same sins again and again. Once we've said, I'm sorry that I was prayerless, we'll never be prayerless again. That when we say, I'm sorry I'm such a, a vain and proud man, that we'll never be vain and proud again. That we will find ourselves in our Christian lives saying, sorry Lord, it's me again, same old sins. And in the wonder of saying those things to God, there's mercy and there's pardon and strength is given us. The Christian falls seven times and seven times. Jesus Christ lifts us up. And he keeps us. Where would we be without so loving and merciful a saviour? Deal with your sin by going to God. Saying, I want my life to have a, a reality, a credibility about it from now on. I want to be serving the Lord. And I don't want to despair. And that every time I fall, I want to be able to get up and say, Lord, here am I. Please have mercy on me and help me. I'm carnal, I'm sold to sin, but oh, I have someone who loves me and will pick me up and keep me. This Savior can be your Savior. This Savior is Chloe's Savior. She'll tell us a little word in a moment about that. It's for ordinary people like us. This Savior, for you. Lord, bless your word to us tonight and uh, help us to understand uh, the, the great God of heaven that he dwells and lives with those that are of a broken and contrite spirit. They don't despise those who say, oh, I'm sold to sin, I'm gone. That it's music in heaven. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that man was justified the moment he said it. Oh, help us to say the same thing to us. And say it often. And say it never disbelieving for a moment that we can say that. And that has hardened thy heart and turn us away. Oh, please grant it in thy mercy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.